0: It's lovely to see you tonight. Thank you for coming. And thanks to those who fed and watered us today. It was really good to be with you, and thank you for looking after us as well. We're going to read from Joshua chapter 8. But before we read, I want to tell you a little story. I was doing some research in this passage in relation to this altar that was built on Mount Ebal, and uh, recently, in the last 20 years, a professor from one of the universities in Israel was responsible for the archaeological find of this particular altar, proving its date. And it caused a remarkable transformation in him, because many Israeli archaeologists are brought up to disbelieve the Old Testament And this professor actually discovered that this altar on Mount Ebal was found exactly where it was, at exactly the right era, and he came to faith in the Word of God, having been a total skeptic up until this time when the Lord revealed this altar to him. And so I have great confidence, as I always do, in reading this last part of Joshua chapter 8, as we continue our studies in this lovely book, So, Joshua 8 from verse 30 to the end of the chapter, please. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses an altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings, which are sometimes called peace offerings, depending on which version you're reading. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joseph, I beg your pardon, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses, which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials, and judges, we are standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the Book of the Law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. It's interesting that they have aliens in Old Testament times. I was wondering, having read this article about this Israeli professor, if one of the reasons the Lord designates the geographical position of this altar was so that in our generation this Israeli professor might come to faith in the word of God because thus is our God. Just to give a little bit of geography which I think may be helpful. We're now in the veil of Shechem. You may remember that a lot of Jacob's story uh, is fixed around the Vale of Shechem. And it lies between Mount Ebal, which is in the north, and is an absolutely barren mountain, almost without any vegetation, and Mount Gerizim in the south, which is covered in fir trees and is very verdant. There's only two miles distance between the top of Mount Gerizim and the top of Mount Ebal. So you'll recognise that this is a very deep defile which is commonly called the Vale of Shechem in Scripture. It is hugely important in the geography of the land of Israel. For a number of reasons, you may remember that it was here in the Vale of Shechem that the Lord promised the land of Canaan to Abram. It was actually when Abram was at Shechem that the promise came to him. Hugely significant that this is where the the uh, nation of Israel finds itself at this time as they embark upon the claiming of the land for God. Jacob's well was there. Sychar is sighted right at the opening of the Veil of Shechem. You remember what happened at the Jacob's well, don't you? All sorts of biblical teaching, but you remember it was there that the Lord Jesus sat on the well and met the women of Samaria. And you remember the conversation that they had where the woman of Samaria said, well, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, which was the holy place as far as the Samaritans were concerned. So Jesus talks to the woman of Samaria and reveals himself to her as the Messiah. So it's a key location in the history of Israel. One further interesting thing about it, it's a natural acoustic amphitheater. Have have you been to the Whispering Gallery in St. Paul's Cathedral, have you ever tried to listen to somebody whispering on the other side? Because if you've got your ear on your side, there's a whole lot of people whispering on your side as well as those who are whispering on the other side, and you get a real mixed message. One of the beautiful things about this passage is there's no mixed message here. It's absolutely clear what the uh, man of God, Joshua, is going to say. So remember, it's a natural acoustic amphitheatre. He probably didn't even have to raise his voice. You can speak on one side at the bottom of Mount Ebal and be heard very clearly on the bottom of Mount Gerizim across the valley. So that's a little bit of a background. And one of them may to it into this passage in a very simple and straightforward way today. Because Mount Ebal was commonly thought of to be the mountain of cursing the place where the curses of God were fulfilled because it was so barren. And Gerizim was seen as the Mount of Blessing because it was so verdant. And even though Ebal was on the north, which was closer to Jerusalem, and Gerizim on the south, Gerizim was thought of as being the one which was most precious as far as God was concerned. Now what's central to this? Well, I'm going to suggest to you two things. You notice that you have immediately the emphasis upon an altar of uncut stones. You just bring the text up again, please, Hazel. That'll be good. Uh, Verse 30 Built it according to what was written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones in which no iron tool has been used. There they offered burnt offerings and sacrifice offerings. But the other thing which is present here is the Ark of the Covenant. So try and get the picture in your mind if you could. Right central to this gathering of the people of Israel after their victory at Ai, you have an altar and you have the Ark of the Covenant. And for those of you who enjoy doing homework during the months when I'm away, um, just to mention, you may find some interest. If you look at how often the Ark of the Covenant and the tables of the, the law are mentioned and how often an altar is mentioned, in the rest of the book of Joshua after this occurrence and then draw your own conclusions when you've had a wee look at that. So here is an altar of undressed stones. I'm going to stretch your memory a little. Do you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? No. Well, there were 450 prophets of Baal And there was Elijah. And Elijah challenged them to prove that the God who who they worshipped, who was known as Baal, or Baal, was the true God. Or was Elijah's God, Jehovah, was he the true God? So he said to the prophets of Baal, I think you should make an offering to your God. And the God that answers by fire and sends down fire, because Baal was thought of as the God of thunder and lightning, The God who answers by fire, then he'll be the real God. So the prophets of Baal began to worship according to their thesis, and they did everything they could to get Baal to answer their prayer, even to the point of shedding their own blood around the altar that they had built. And the heavens were silent. And then Elijah takes 12 stones, uncut stones, stones which had never been shaped by an iron too, and he built an altar to the Lord, and he dug a trench round it, and he put the offering on it, and he put the wood on it, and then he drenched it all with water, and then he cried once to the Lord to answer by fire, and the Lord answered by fire and took up that burnt offering, as an indication of the fact that He is God, Jehovah. Elijah had said to the people, "How long will you alter, How long will you halt between two opinions?" If Baal be God, then follow him. But if it Jehovah be God, then follow him. Nail your colors to the mass and get real in relation to your faith. So an, un, a, an altar of uncut stones, as you'll see from the text here, is built according to the book of the law of Moses. Man had no part in it. It was uncut. He hadn't shaped the stones. They were the stones which God had provided for the altar. You'll notice that on it, according to verse 31, they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. Now, another bit of homework for you. If you have a look at the opening chapters of Leviticus, it becomes very obvious from the teaching in the epistle to the Hebrews that the Lord Jesus is typified in the burnt offering and in the peace offering or fellowship offerings. Himself being offered to God as a burnt offering and being offered on our behalf as a peace offering to make peace with God through the blood of his cross. And, you know, it's interesting how these little overlaps occur right through Scripture. The book of the law of Moses, the book of the law of God, you will do it this way. So Joshua does it this way. And an offering, the burnt offering, and the fellowship offering upon it indicates that the people are absolutely... uh, committed to following the law of the Lord as far as the law of the offerings were concerned. He does something else. The law is written on the altar. It's said of the Lord Jesus that he fulfilled the law absolutely. You and I have real trouble fulfilling the law for a day. There was never indication in the life of our dear Lord that he sinned. Indeed the scripture teaches that it was not possible for him to sin because he is God. So here is this altar, and it has written upon it the law in all its detail. the 10 laws that Moses gave an or God gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 20. And I was wondering, you know, how real we are in our obedience to the Lord. You know, we can make an offering and say, well, Lord, you can have some of my money, you can have some of my time. But how real am I in my obedience to him? Touched on this this morning, you'll remember. Whatever he says to you, do it. And so easy, well, you might not find it easy, but I find it easy to just ignore the promptings that the Lord gives me from his word and say, well, I'll do it sometime. But we're here this evening, and we're going to partake of bread and wine in a moment. And effectively, we're saying to the Lord, I recognize your glory. I recognize you've sacrificed yourself for my sins. But that necessarily must put me in a position where I'm required to obey his commands. If you love me, John 15, no, John fourteen, fifteen. if you love me, keep my commands, keep my commandments. So obedience is part of our worship. Our response to the Lord is required of us in the way we act and react. So this was a place of communion. It was a place of sacrifice. It was a place of worship. But it was a reminder of the need for obedience. And it's all set there in this figurative form before the Israelites. They have the ark of the covenant of the Lord. They have the words of the law put on the altar. And they have the offerings which are made on the altar at the same time. So they're standing each side of you. know what it says. Incidentally, the Altar is built on Mount Ebal, the place of the curse. It's not built on Mount Gerizim, the place of blessing. And remember that our Lord became accursed for us. Remarkable sort of parallel here. Verse 33. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, with their elders, officials and judges, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites, half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim, place of blessing, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, the place of cursing, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel. So here you have the whole nation, one on either side, or a group of them on either side, six on each, and facing this altar and the Ark of the Covenant and the sacrifice which is offered Now, the teaching's so evident, isn't it? You and I are called upon to have right at the center of our living our ongoing awareness of the Lord Jesus, his obedience to God's command, his sacrifice on behalf of our sin to God, a recognition that he is central to our thinking, but central also to our actions. Now, as far as I know, this is the only time in Israel's history that such a thing took place. Ai had been a reminder of both disobedience and obedience. Disobedience on the part of Achan, which led to defeat. Obedience by Joshua and the rest of the nation in response to the direction of God, as we saw this morning. You and I, my dear brothers and sisters, are called exactly the same way. I fear at times that as Christians we pick and choose. And we decide whether we're going to obey or not obey. And we decide whether we're going to respond to the Lord or we're going to be disobedient to him. And so often when we talk to one another, it becomes evident that that's the way our lives are. They're sort of skewed. And we love singing songs, and we love being together to sing songs, and we enjoy communion. But if I'm expressing communion, I'm also expressing obedience. This do in remembrance of me. So we're acting in obedience by doing it. But I really have him right at the center of my living. This division between blessing and cursing, which follows here. Afterwards, you'll notice what follows in verse 34. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it's written in the book of the law, There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived amongst them. This was an all-encompassing sermon, this reading of the book of the law. All ages of the family had to listen to it. They were all brought under the sound of it. It was significant to each And even to those who had been born outside of Israel. And this, of course, would include Rahab because she was one of this number. She was there, standing there as an alien, being brought into the commonwealth of Israel, recognizing the law of the Lord upon her life, recognizing her response to the, the, the various offerings that were being made. Now, you and I as Christians, and this is really where I wanted to get to tonight, You and I as Christians have been freed from the curse of the law. We are no longer under condemnation, as the scripture reminds us. The law can no longer condemn us because Christ has died in our place. So the condemnation is gone because of our faith in the Lord Jesus and the fact that his life has been given for us upon the cross. But secondly, as Christians, we need to recognize that the keeping of the law is part of my expression of my love to the Lord. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I think sometimes as Christians we get a wee bit off beam. We say we no longer have to obey the law. No, we don't have to obey it, but we should want to obey it. Because this is what God requires of us. So it's not an obligation in the sense of trying to avoid condemnation by it, but it's an obligation to fulfill our response to the Lord in love. And you might say, well, I've been freed from that. No, you haven't. I think sometimes as Christians we get this, as I say, skewed in our minds. I have to obey the law of the Lord because of my heart for him. This is part of his will. I know that. You know, I've often got young people ask me, how can I know the will of God? Most of it's written down here. You know, just read what it says. Oh, I don't like reading the Bible. Then you don't know what the Lord's will is for you. You know, this is this is inspired by the same spirit that brought you to life. So we are called to this recognition that I'm obliged to fulfill the commands of the Lord from my heart, not because I have to but because I love him, I want to please him. So we are called to this. The work of Calvary makes us right with God through faith in our Lord Jesus. And we now demonstrate that by doing the will of God from the heart. We delight to do his will and are enabled in the power of the Spirit so to do. And it's in doing of his will that there is great reward the Scripture teaches. It's in the doing of it. So I could be blunt and ask you what sort of music you listen to, ask you what sort of things you count important, ask you what sort of things are more important, perhaps, than doing the will of God from the heart. I ask myself those questions in my preparation. Do I really want to do what the Lord wants me to do? Do I do things because I enjoy doing them or do I do things because it's what the Lord would have me do? Not that the two things are mutually exclusive. Because if we really discover what the Lord would have us do, there's great enjoyment in doing it. And that's why it's such a blessing to be here again tonight. Because we're going to take this bread and wine uh, in remembrance of what the Lord has done and who he is recognize that this one who is above all things, who created all things by the word of his power, took flesh, became a babe. I was thinking earlier this week, you know, the Lord could have come as Adam at whatever age Adam was when he was created. But he chose to come as a babe. We've got a new baby in our family. Well, she's not quite new now. She's three months old. But it's amazing how little she knows. It's amazing how much she knows, but it's amazing how little she knows. How can he who knows all things and who upholds all things by the word of his power, how can he choose to express himself as a babe so that you and I might know God through his death on a cross? not that amazing? Just to to think about it for a wee minute. And that's part of our issue here, just to spend a few minutes in the the presence of the Lord and and worship him because of all that he is, for what he became as man and remains as man, to recognize that one day we'll see him because of all that he has done, because I trust in him. He forgives my sin. He makes me a new person. He brings me into a new society. He brings me into a new family. He gives me a new life. The scripture calls it everlasting life. But it's not the life we once had, it's the life which we will have. Our calling to be with him and in his presence forever. Isn't that just marvelous? And to have this opportunity of just expressing that to him and thanking him for all that he has done. Mount Ebal, the place of cursing. Mount Gerizim, the place of blessing.